Father, we are ready to hear from your spirit. We're ready to hear from your word. for That's why we have come. Speak to us now, O God, and convict our hearts. Change us to be more like Christ. For that is why we are here. And your word is the only thing that will ever change the human heart. We ask for your grace to just be so abundant among us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For those of you who didn't know who that was, Nick Vujicic was born with tetraamelia syndrome. It's a rare genetic disorder. He has no arms and no legs. He has two small little flippers at the bottom of his body. And the amazing thing that he says in there is his prayers. Did you catch that? His prayers to God. I was so selfish in asking for my suffering to be removed. So we've been talking about in Romans now, we're at the end of the, uh, almost at the end of Romans chapter 8 in this little uh, journey that we've been taking. Remember we started off talking about uh, Romans chapter 6. We started talking about relationship that we have with God has changed now that we have believed the gospel. And our relationship to God has changed and our relationship to sin has changed. It no longer has power over us. And yet in Romans chapter 7, we struggle with that, right? We've heard Paul say those those famous words that we all quote. I don't know what I'm doing, and the things that I want to do, I don't. And the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing those. Wretched man that I am, who can free me from this body death? Who can set me free? And that's the, the testimony of us all, right, when we first get saved. We all struggle with that because we have this flesh, this personal sinful desires that we seem to just be fighting all the time. But in Romans chapter 8, we spent the last few weeks studying this. Thanks be to God, Paul would say, the Apostle Paul would say. For now there is no guilt, there is no shame, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He is the new way, the game changer, the giving of the Holy Spirit to indwell us through the rest of our lives and for eternity. Romans chapter 8 says, What the law, what the self could not do because it was weak, God did. We have victory over sin, believing God is the one doing it. God is the one moving in our hearts to make us more like Christ. And so the security that he wants us to have takes the form of adoption. We talked about this last week, didn't we? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you don't have your Bible with you, I think there's one in the seat backs. And I think we're on page, somebody yell out the page number. Greg, what's the page number? 124. There you go. New Testament. Verse 16 says, The Spirit himself, God himself, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, We like that part, because that's our security, that we are heirs of God, children of God, adopted into his family. Adoption is permanent, can't be undone. Our hearts have been changed, can't be undone. Paul's uh, leading us into this idea of this security and this assurance we have that God will never, ever change us back and leave us in the old way that we were. And then he says this in verse 17, children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. 
Now remember, our assurance is not based on what we do. We're going to see this over and over again. The assurance that we have of, of heaven, of eternal blessings, of being with God forever is not based on what we do. It's based on what God did. That's how we have the assurance and security of it. But then Paul, you know, we, we all like to hear about being heirs with Christ. We talked about this last week and the, this, this great thing we're going to have when we get to heaven. We're going to have God. We're going to have blessings. And we all like, yeah, hoo-hoo, hallelujah. But then with that word suffering in there. And we're like, oh, I knew he was going to say that. Why does suffering always have to come into it? Interesting, Nick Vujicic probably has a different opinion about that than maybe we do this morning. Suffering and glory somehow are tied together. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8 that suffering that is shared with Christ leads to our being glorified with Christ. Now, why talk to people about uh, uh, assurance, or why talk about suffering to people who need assurance? Why bring up this thing about suffering? Well, I think that we need to understand that persecution, when we're persecuted in our faith, that's a proof of sonship. So you need to have that first and foremost. When, God, when someone persecutes you in the faith, that's a proof that you are a son. Praise God and hallelujah. Suffering gives eternal power to our witness because people look at how you're suffering. They look at a Nick Vujicic and they go, how can he do that? Only by God. Suffering is necessary, apparently, as the ordained path to glory. And it's something we should not shirk, but something we should embrace. Paul is going to show us how we can be secure in life and assured of God's purpose and will in our life, even when things go wrong. Now, understand this. Everybody's okay with God when things are going great. Can I get an amen to that? Everybody's great with God when things are going good. It's when things are going down that we have a trouble life, that we, we, we wonder, where is God at? And remember, we talk about the gospel, we talk about salvation. I just want to review this so that we understand where we're at. There's three aspects of salvation. When I say I'm saved, you're saved from what? Most people don't know how to answer that question. Romans chapter 5 says ultimately the first thing you need to realize is that you're saved from the penalty of God's wrath. And that's a great thing. Justified. It's a big word, isn't it? Justified never sinned, right? I was saved. On that day I accepted Christ. I was saved. I asked him into my heart. That's my testimony. I'm changed forever. Heaven is my home. God is no longer my enemy. He's my friend and he loves me and he'll never change his love for me. That's a great day. Then there's the aspect of salvation where we are sanctified. Another big church word. Saved from the power of sin. And that's what we've really been talking about the last few weeks in this series in Romans 6, 7, and 8. I am being saved. You know, the gospel doesn't quit working just because you got baptized, uh, prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, raised your hand, and you had that moment, that experience in your life. The gospel does not quit working. We're having a baptism next Sunday, by the way. Down at the shores, 2 o'clock, y'all need to come. It's a party. We're going to party with those who are going to have some few people getting baptized, so please. And if you need to get baptized or want to get baptized, see me after the service, because we're going to do that next Sunday down at the shores, where we always do our our things um, on the beach out there. So, I was saved, I am being saved from the power of sin. Ultimately, God says, or Paul says, we're going to be glorified. 
somehow we're going to be changed. Our bodies are going to be changed to, to, in the likeness of Christ. And we're going to be set apart from sin. Sin will never have a place in our lives ever again. So I was saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. So this is what Paul is talking about, this experience that we're going through. Then he says in Romans 18, uh, 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says, for I consider. The Greek word is logizomai. What he's saying is, I have thought about this, I have looked at it from all the angles, and I have put a lot of work into figuring this out, and what I think is this. And so my question is, as we begin this study this morning, have you thought about this? Have you considered what the scriptures say about your relationship to God, your assurance of it, even through the hard times. Paul says, I've weighed both sides of the issue, and here's what I think. Have you done that? He says in verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now what he's saying is that he's, he's going to start talking about the sufferings of this present time. You probably need to explain that, the sufferings of the present time. There's a lot of suffering going on in the world today, is there not? There's probably a lot of suffering going on in your life, at least from time to time. What sufferings are we talking about? What sufferings of the present time has Paul considered not to be worthy to some future glory? Because remember, the contrast is suffering and glory, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Are there sinful acts of sinful people that are worked out upon our lives that hurt us? Absolutely. It happens in grade school when you're bullied. It happens at work when you're harassed. It happens all over the place when you're persecuted as a Christian. Yes, sinful acts of sinful people. There's the circumstances of a wicked society, an increasingly more and more wicked society that pushes its secular beliefs upon us, and we suffer from that. We suffer in this life because of a sinful society that is more and more ungodly. And you know what? We all make choices that are sinful as well. And we will result, those circumstances will result from a sinful choice. What's the whole point? All sin produces suffering. All sin. No matter where it comes from, no matter who propagates it, it produces suffering of some kind. So what Paul is doing here is he's comparing our suffering today, which is very real. Paul's not minimizing what he's talking about. It's very real what we're going through, the hurt that we have. And he's comparing it to a future glory that he says is just as real. He says, have you thought about that? You know, C.S. Lewis, great Christian author, he preached a sermon called The Weight of Glory uh, back in 1941. His eloquent explanation of the promises of Scripture can be reduced to this. Number one, we shall be with Christ. Number two, we shall be like him. Number three, we shall have glory like him. Number four, we shall be feasted. C.S. Lewis must have been a good Baptist at heart, right? Because he's talking about eating. We love to eat when we get together. And finally, he says, we shall have some official position in the universe. He's describing our future glory. And this understanding that C.S. Lewis kind of talked about was so real to Paul that he had to make his readers and us feel how real it is. 
Now listen to C.S. Lewis as he continues. This really hits home. He says this. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem, listen to this, that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. He says we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it means by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Are our desires not strong enough? Because we fool about with the things of this world. We get caught up in the suffering of this world and don't look to the future glory of God. There's three ways I'm going to look at this morning. Three ways I think this passage shows us that we have assurance, that we have security to make it through the worst times in life. Again, none of us have a real hard time making it through the good times. When the money's rolling, you know, the family's good, kids are are not off the reservation, mom and dad are getting along, things are great, everything's good, right? Hallelujah, praise God. But when the hard times hit, where do you turn? Where's your faith? What do you rest on? Three things that Paul wants to show us this morning. First of all, we have a partner in suffering. We have a partner. Uh, Bring your attention back to chapter 8. Now we'll start in verse 19. He says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. We have a partner in this suffering. It's called creation. It's called nature. Interesting that he draws a parallel between mankind and nature. We're not so separated as the secular world would make us to be. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. He's because creation is a slavery to decay. It's connected to man's sin. It began at the fall with Adam. It says the creation is anxiously longing. Uh, In the Greek, it's kind of hard to translate. It's the image of an outstretched neck. Like, like, you know, you're looking. That's the image that Paul wants us to have of creation, of nature. It's waiting, it's looking for the glory of the sons of God to be revealed in that day when God comes back, when Jesus comes back and transforms the world. So he kind of personifies creation and says, you know what, it's suffering along with you. Creation is waiting for its renewal, and its renewal is tied to the sons of God. It's tied to us. We are not disconnected from creation. We all know the story of how Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And when God came to him, he said, uh, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which I commanded you not to eat from, cursed is the ground because of you, right? That's what he said. Toil and trouble and thorns and thistles and weeds. By the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread. It's going to be hard life now. And that curse that we see is the violence that we see today in nature. There is illness in the world. There's death. There's disease. Not only among ourselves, but among the world as well. Thunderstorms, 
and tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes. We don't see a whole lot of that here in beautiful, sunny Southern California. But if you go to some other places in the country or in the world, you're, you're seeing nature in your face all the time. Those thunderstorms can get nasty. Hurricanes are not fun. Tornadoes you see them tear up the Midwest. Floods that are just terrible. Where does all that stuff come from? Creation is cursed. It's decaying. It's the second law of thermodynamics. It's called entropy. All things are moving from some state to a lower state, to an end. It's such a great argument against evolution because everybody could look in the world and say, you know, nothing's getting better. It's all digressing. It's all decaying. It's all devolving. So how do you get evolution out of that? I don't know. It says the creation is groaning. Again, it's a personification. This groaning of creation. What does it mean to groan in the sense that we're using it here? Uh, experiencing a common calamity probably is the best way to put it. We are in it together is what Paul is saying. Creation's in it with you. You're not alone. God cursed the ground so that you have a reminder that every time a tornado comes or every time a flood happens, every time an earthquake occurs, you know that creation is cursed waiting for the day when God's going to come back and make all things right. That's what it should be reminding us. We are in it together. And not only does it groan on its own, we groan with it. Look at verse 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. We know we're already adopted, so what does Paul mean by this? Sometimes the secret to Bible study is to keep reading. He says, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, comma, the redemption of our body. That's what he's talking about. It's a trick question. From now on, when I ask you something, just keep reading, and the answer's usually there. So we groan in ourselves, too, because we as Christians know that there's a future for us. Paul says, embrace that. Live in assurance that that future is coming and that your body's going to be changed someday. And like creation, when it's made new again, God will glorify himself in you. And that, he says, should be one of our signs of assurance. We see in 2 Corinthians a parallel passage for, uh, we see there, Paul says, for indeed in this house, he's talking about our body, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. What an awesome thought that in someday we're never going to have a body that the teeth fall out of it. We're never going to have a body when, when the hair just seems to turn clear and then it turns loose. You know, what a great day that's going to be when our bodies are perfect and we don't wake up with aches and pains and bruises and batterings and, you know, isn't that going to be a great day? And creation's never going to have thorns and thistles and it's never going to be harsh and, and all this violence ever again. That day is coming, Paul says, and we're groaning for it. In Revelation 21, we know that the Apostle John had this vision and he was told to write these things and he says this. I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and when there will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. That's the glory that we are supposed to be anxiously 
longing and growing for. My question is, are you this morning? Paul sees the creation groaning, and he sees the future glory of creation and says that glory is so much more than what we're going through right now. That glory that's waiting for us is so much more than these light momentary moments of affliction that are happening right now. We have a partner to remind us of a future glory. So when you see decay and violence and in nature, what do you do? You groan. But you don't groan as one without hope. You groan knowing that this is just temporary. You groan with the hope of glory. So we have a partner. Second thing that we have is a power. A power to endure suffering. Look at verse 26. In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. In the same way, right, as our partner. As knowing that this is happening. In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, there's that word again, too deep for words, and he searches the hearts, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You know, there are times when we get so down and so low, we don't even know how to pray. You ever been like, you just don't even know what words to utter. You're like, God, I just don't have it this morning. I got the old tin roof and my prayers are bouncing off. They're coming back to me and I don't know what to say to you, Lord. I'm so low. I'm so depressed. I'm so in pain. I'm so hurt. I'm so worried. Whatever it is, I don't know how to pray to you. You ever been there? Sure you have. Because we get weak sometimes and life gets hard. And prayer just seems to get hard to come out. Know this, Paul says, that's when the Holy Spirit steps in and says, I got you covered. I got your back. He says, I know what to pray for. The Holy Spirit comes to our aid. Remember the word groan. He's groaning too. We're in it together, Paul says. It's a common calamity. The Holy Spirit has put himself inside your heart and inside your body. He's living it out with you. You're not alone. Here is security. God himself inside of us says, I'll walk through it with you. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God is present in our suffering, even without an explanation of why it's happening. And I think so many times we want God to explain to us why this is happening. God, why is this? What did I not do to receive this, Lord? That's the story of Job, isn't it? Right? His friends kept saying, what did you do? For God to do that to you. And Job's like, I don't, know, I don't know what I did. His friends kept coming back. Well, maybe you did this, or maybe you didn't do that. Or maybe. No, at the end, does God explain to Job why he made him suffer? No. <laughs> That's the great story of Job. God just says, why don't you just trust me, knowing that the hope of your future glory is so much more than this momentary affliction that you're going through right now. Psalm 34 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Isaiah 41, I saw it on our uh, whiteboard and I was teaching the kids last week this verse. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's the God that lives in us. 
Do we need an explanation of why we're suffering? Really? You know, when your kids are hurting and they've fallen down, maybe they've even done something wrong. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time and they hurt themselves. They skinned a knee, broke an arm, cracked their head, whatever, and they come running home. The first thing that you do is you set them down and start explaining to them why they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? Well, I hope not. I hope you just comfort them. I hope you love on them. Let me clean you up a little bit. Let me give you a hug. It's going to be okay. Isn't that the experience of parents and kids when kids are getting hurt and in trouble? Of course it is. Why can't we just do the same thing with God? Why can't we just go to God and say, God, I need to fall in your arms right now because I don't know what's happening, but I trust you. Comfort me. And not ask for explanations. Are your souls weary this morning? Is your spirit burdened this morning? Is life seeming unfair and hard right now? You don't need an explanation, brothers and sisters. You need a comforter. And he lives inside of you. His name is the Holy Spirit. God does not simply provide our security and assurance. He is our security and assurance. And there is a power in suffering that comes from God. And I can't explain it because it comes from God, but it's there. And that power, it remains sure. It remains steadfast. It's unchanging. And that power is God himself, the Holy Spirit, inside all believers. He's inside you and he's inside me if you claim him as your Lord. So not only do we have a partner in our suffering, in creation, that reminds us there's a future glory coming, but we have the power to sustain us in our suffering. And finally, the last piece of assurance, we have a promise of security in our suffering. Look at Romans 8.28. Possibly the most encouraging verse in all of Scripture. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. A couple of things in that one verse. We know. We know when life hurts. We know when we are grieving. We suffer when life is hard. We suffer when there's loss. We suffer when there's sin. We know when that's happening. No one has to tell us, hey, this is what's going on in your life. No, I get that. I'm feeling that. But here's what he says. We know this verse is true. We know. Let the the knowledge that's in your head make the 18 inches into your heart. So that when you grieve, and you will, because we grieve in this life, we don't grieve, grieve as with those who have no hope. There is relationship of suffering to glory that only Christians have. The unbelieving world suffers as well. And sometimes they suffer for a good thing, like a cause. And and, and that's all great. And they suffer well. I've seen monks in the street, right? You've seen them on TV. They light themselves on fire for their cause. And they're, oh, they're suffering right there. But here's what they don't have. They don't have the promise and the hope of glory with God someday for eternity. They have no spiritual blessings awaiting them. They have no anticipation of ultimately all wrongs in the world being righted. Did you know that? God is someday going to right every wrong that's ever been done in your life and in my life and in the history of the world. God's going to make it right. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Are we letting him repay? 
the unsaved have no hope in their persecution. There's lots of persecution of people going on in the world. They have no hope. We do. We know, Paul would say in Romans 8, 28. And what do we know? We know all things work together. Here's what we've got to really put our head around. Sometimes this is so difficult. God's going to stop, God's going to allow, or God's going to initiate all the events and circumstances in our life. There is no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as fate. That's what this verse means. That's what this passage is talking about. All things work together. What are all things? All things. <laughs> Do you believe that? Everything. Do you believe everything that happens in your life? Even your bad choices and sinful acts are somehow filtered through the loving fingers of the hands of God before they hit your life. Do you believe that? Because that's what this verse teaches us. Oh, how assured we can be that God is for us and not against us. All things work together. The Greek word is synergo. Synergy. That's where we get the word synergy. The sum of the whole is greater than the parts. Right? We see that example in the natural world, don't we? Uh, you take a piece of sodium and you take some chloride. Individually, they're just nasty things, right? But you put them together, what do you get? Table salt. So, all things work together for good. What does good mean? Now, in everything in this life, there is the potential for God to work good. This is for our spiritual good. God is able to redeem suffering for a greater spiritual good. And get this now, he doesn't mean riches. He doesn't mean health. He means he's going to conform you to the likeness of Christ through what happens in our lives. God's going to do that. We can't. God will. You might not see it now. It might take a month. It might take two years. It might be ten years. But at some point, God's going to reveal to you how he grew you and how he changed you. And he made you more like Christ because of what you went through trusting him the whole time. That's assurance. That's security. God's never going to remove his love from you. And he's never going to remove his presence from you, even in the worst of times. So you might say, wow, am I supposed to believe that the things that happened to me are actually good? No, that's not what he's saying. All things means bad things, too. But God is not waiting for the evil and the bad to show up and go, oh, wow, what am I going to do about that? Didn't see that one coming. No, God is not talking like that. He knew what was going to happen. He either stops, plans, initiates, or allows everything that's going on in the life of a believer. He's active in planning, the Bible says, even before the foundation of the world, he's got it planned out. Oh, what a sovereign and almighty God we serve. Do you have assurance in him? So bad and evil things can happen to us. Suffering, falling to temptation, divine chastisement. Call it scourging to make us more like Christ. Remember now, the ultimate evil act in the universe. Let's just make sure we cover this. What is the most ultimate evil act that ever happened in the universe? Crucifixion of the Son of God. And God planned that from before the foundation of the world. John MacArthur says this, God sometimes does not turn down the trouble, but instead turns up the grace. Isn't that good? He doesn't turn down the trouble. He just turns up the grace and says, look at my child who can walk through that. And then we have this great ending to this passage in verse 29. 
4, because he's explaining verse 28. So verse 29 is explaining how all things work together for good for those who are called according to purpose. He says, for those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, if you're waiting this morning thinking we're going to have a, a discussion about the doctrine of election, I'm sorry to disappoint you. That's another sermon series. Because I don't think Paul is really teaching about the doctrine of election here. He's not teaching about uh, um, how God moves in the hearts of believers and his, the theology of, of God working to get people into salvation. I think, remember, the context of this passage, what is Paul teaching about? Security and assurance. So the context of these verses is within this bigger framework of assurance and security that we are saved and loved by God forever. The fact that we are safe and secure in the promise that glory will ultimately be ours. You know, this passage has been debated for hundreds of years. The whole idea of free will versus predestination. Again, topic for another sermon series. Look at the five words that Paul uses. Huge words. God foreknew. He was active in planning out all of our lives. He predestined. He was going to make sure it was going to happen. He called. God did something to move in our hearts. He justified as if we'd never sinned, declared us righteous, and someday will glorify us in his presence. You know what Paul is describing here? It's the 100% confidence that we need to have. The same number that he called is the same number he's going to justify, is the same number that he's going to glorify. No one will be lost. If he called you and you accepted... You're going to be glorified through all those other words that he's talking about. The entire initiative in our salvation lies with God before history, before he began the process, and it's inside history that he finished it. And no matter which side of this discussion that you find yourself falling on, which we're not going to get into today, when you read this passage, you have to come to the agreement of this. We have to come together and say this, that without God doing something in the world, like sending Jesus to die for us, and God doing something in us, like calling us through the power of his Holy Spirit, that there would be no salvation. Can we agree on that this morning? Amen. So here's what Paul is saying. In all of our suffering, in all the circumstances of this life, we are secure in our relationship with God. The salvation that you have will never, ever lose. You won't walk away from it. Why? Because God's the one who called you into it. You can think you can walk away from it, but God says, no, you're mine. I'm going to turn you back around. Because God's the one sanctifying your life, not you. The salvation that you have, you will never, ever lose. God's never going to change his love towards you, even in the bad times. Our salvation is not based on what we did. And yes, we all say, well, I walked the aisle and I prayed a prayer or whatever. Yes, but everything up to that point was God's work. So when you suffer, as we close this morning, I'm going to ask Rush and Micah to come on back up. 
Here's what we want to do. Some of you are suffering right now. Some of you are going through some hard times right now. And if you aren't, <laughs> you will. And when you suffer, when things aren't going good, when you're doubting what's happening to you, you're doubting where God is at in your life, why would a loving God allow these things to happen? Maybe not to me. Maybe it's to my family I'm worried about. I'm going to ask you to do one thing. Just like Paul said, groan a little bit and remember heaven. Groan a little bit and say it's coming. When your loved ones are suffering, tell them about heaven. Because creation is groaning with us. It's in it with us. This common calamity called the curse. The Holy Spirit is in it with us. And when you don't know what to pray for, he says, I got you covered. I'll pray for you. I'll groan for you when you don't know how to groan. And remember the promise that there's a home for you where there is no pain. There is no tears. There's no suffering. There's no loss of loved ones. There's no tearing of the heart. There's nothing but joy in the presence of an almighty God. So bow your heads with me this morning. And let's spend a moment just reflecting and responding here. And remember this. When you're on your worst day. In that world out there. Right outside those doors. In the world of sin. In the world of suffering. When you feel like quitting. When you feel like a failure. When you are weak. And you just want to give up. On the day that you choose to sin maybe. On the day you rebel against God because that old nature, that old flesh just finds its way home and you give in to it. On that day when you don't feel like a child of God, yes, even on that day, remember that you are still loved by God. You are still his child. You still call him Abba, Father. And he's there to comfort you. We started this morning looking at Nick Boychich. He's a follower of Christ, and he says he lives what he calls a ridiculously good life. Listen to what he says as you're reflecting on the message today. When I'm asked, he says, how I can claim a ridiculously good life when I have no arms or legs. People assume I'm suffering from what I lack. They inspect my body and they wonder how I could possibly give my life to God, who allowed me to be born without limbs. Others have attempted to soothe me by saying that God has all the answers, and then when I'm in heaven, I will find out his intentions. Listen to what he says. Instead, I choose to live by what the Bible says, which that God is the answer today. God is the answer yesterday. God is the answer always. And when people read about my life, or witness me living it, they are prone to congratulate me for being victorious over my disabilities. And I tell them this, you've got to get this, that my victory came in surrender. And it comes every day when I acknowledge that I cannot do this on my own. So I say to God, I give it to you. Once I yielded, the Lord took my pain and turned it into something good. He works all things together.
for good, for those who love God, who are called by him according to his purposes. He gave my life meaning when no one and nothing else could provide it. And if God can take someone like me, someone without arms and legs, and use me as his hands and feet, he can use anybody. It's not about ability. The only thing that God needs from you is a willing heart. your heart willing to put God above everything else, even when you're suffering? Do you have that assurance and security that you are always a child of God, that you are always resting in his arms, that you are always welcomed home as the son and the daughter? And that's enough to get us through this life. And that's why we don't need to worry about the things in this world, as Rush was reading to us from David Platt's book, Radical. That's how we have an attitude like that, because we don't care about anything else except that we're following God who loves us and gave himself up for us. Father, we praise you. We praise you. We praise you. These words that just jump off the page. They humble us, how much love you have for us and how much you've had to to deal in our lives to get us to this place. We thank you. I pray if there's anyone here who has not come to the place yet where they call you Abba Father, that you'd reveal that to them and that they would come and tell one of us and tell me or tell somebody what God's doing in their hearts and in their lives, whether it's this morning or on the beach or wherever we're at. We look forward to those whom you're going to call into your kingdom because you've foreknown them and predestined them and called them and justified them and will glorify them. Hallelujah, what a Savior we have. So we just praise you this morning and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.